Hi listeners, I'm Lisa, the founder of Maxine VR and the host of Maximize Mental Health. This podcast is for Gen Z and everyone who wants to talk about mental health, struggles and everyday problems. Every week we're inviting guests who are sharing their personal stories. Join us for casual conversations between our co-hosts Barbara and Ryan and our weekly guests who are breaking taboos and stigma around mental health. Welcome to Maximize Mental Health. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Maximize podcast for Gen Z, uh, the podcast from Maxim VR up. I'm your host, Ryan Michael Hannon. Today, we're joined by Lauren Houston of Action Mental Health. Uh, welcome, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad, not too bad. Um, okay, so I know we did a little bit of pre-prep before this uh, meeting, but I guess the first question is really the most fundamental question, arguably, I think, is this where the journey begins. What got you into studying psychology and what took you there? What advanced experiences? And then, by definition, studying mental health after as well. What took you there? Yeah, so if you'd asked me that 10, 15 years ago, I definitely wouldn't have told you that I was going to go into psychology or mental health. Um, I was a really perfectionistic child and then I went to a really academic school. So it felt really natural for me to want to go into either medicine or law and I would make a terrible lawyer. Um, so I kind of knew I wanted to help people and I kind of set my my mind on doing medicine. Um, and then as I went through secondary school, I felt that pressure that comes with choosing a medical career. And right from the time that you're really young, which is unbelievable to think about. Um, and then I had some fairly big kind of environmental things that happened in my life that brought about a lot of change. And I started to notice that my mental health took a fairly significant hit. Um, and actually that period was really important for me because it made me think about, okay, well, what is healthy? Because physically I was okay, but actually I'd never really stopped to consider, well, what happens when that mental health piece kind of goes askew? Um, and up until now, or up until that point, because I'd been working towards medicine, I had only really looked at the physical health side of things. And I think that growing up, we're given so much information on how to look after your physical health and, yeah. you know, ways that we can take care of ourselves physically. But nobody's maybe giving us the tools to understand how to navigate big changes in our lives or how we kind of negotiate with big emotions. So it got me really curious about that. And I was really lucky because I had access to a lot of help that people don't have access to always. Um, but I definitely kind of took a step back and realized that it wasn't necessarily a specific treatment or a specific medication that helped me get better. It was somebody being willing to listen and kind of seeing what I was going through and taking the time to understand that. And I realized that I wanted to be that for someone else. Um, and that sounds really cliche. Um, but I kind of took a step back from thinking that medicine was the be all and end all. and was like, right, okay, you're 16. You don't have to have your life figured out. Um, so I took a bit of time before I went to uni and tried to gain some experience in mental health because whilst I had my own journey, everybody's so different. Yeah. And I went and I worked in a residential setting for people with complex mental health disorders. I also worked um, for the Eating Disorders Association and I'm still involved with them. And it was really, really valuable for me in kind of solidifying that career path because 
I had absolutely no clinical skills and I had very little knowledge, but I had loads of time. And it was probably the biggest time in my career where I was able to just spend time with people and find out, okay, you know, what does that feel like for you? How have you maybe felt let down by mental health practitioners before? Or what's important to you in your recovery? And actually, I think a lot of the time, a good mental health practitioner can be the first person who actually listens to someone who bears those feelings that feel really unbearable. And I think that experience of being able to be that for someone made me really determined that I wanted the skill set and the knowledge to be able to back that up. And that kind of led me then to apply to psychology and the the things I've done after that point. Yeah, no, that's a really wonderful answer. That's so elaborate and so well-defined and detailed. Thank you so much um, for that. Um, it's a very, very interesting answer, I think. Some of the things you said there kind of resonate with myself as well. Um, I too went to a very academic school as well. And there was a lot, it was a very kind of, it was built 120 years ago. It's a very old fashioned sort of Catholic grammar school. Um, they're really, really big on getting all the top grades and whatnot. So I too resonate with that as well. Um, maybe once upon a time, whenever I was like 13 or 14, I also had medicine in my eye too. Like, so that's something that I share with you. Um, and then psychology is just something that kind of, you get put, I, th- I feel like it's something that you get, you get pushed towards like after certain experiences in life. Um, I think one of the issues with the medical model, um, I think comes from the fact that due to the, the amount of education required to become you know, a medical practitioner, um, a lot of the people who end up becoming one, they, they've been afforded a lot of good opportunities in life. So they, they don't, they aren't able to, the reason why it's, it's running into such problems in the mental health world, as there's been so much debate about, you know, psychiatric diagnosis versus case formulation and whatnot. But I think one of the big reasons for that is, is because medical practitioners very often, just because of where they've come from in life, haven't actually engaged with a lot of those people on a human level, you know, in the same way that someone from a different sort of circumstance in life has to. So I think like, in order to engage with people in that way, um, I think you have to have certain experiences to take you there. So well, much of what he said there actually resonates with my own life experience uh, as well. So I definitely think there's a huge, you know, huge validity to that. I'm sure that's a lot of people's experience as well. Um, so thank you very much, answer. It's a really good one. Um, so you've a ma- you've you, you're you're still very young and you've amassed yet a lot of experience, you know, um, and you know what you do and you have been involved in kind of treating people in a one-to-one clinical situation and you were with me obviously in threshold and although we were in different units of course best career of my life (laughs) we were both put through that but i think um the you've also done quite a bit of work and kind of providing people with the knowledge and you know you were i know with young minds you worked in providing kind of given like primary school children sort of um, educating them about doing mental health and all the rest of it so what have each of those kind of taught you? And has there been any sort of like, there's a word for this, kind of like cross-pollinization between, or yeah, pollination between those two? Is there kind of like, you know, have they informed each other? What, what have they taught you fundamentally about the nature of mental health? Yeah, 100%. I feel like I'm a totally different person to that person who walked into that psychology degree being like, I want to help people. And I, I have helped people, but it's yeah. not always been really straightforward and the great thing as you said about having those experiences that allow you to work with real people rather than textbooks Mm -hmm. is you get the opportunity to learn every single day and when I was kind of gathering experiences I wanted to have those opportunities that maybe even with that lived experience I'd never lived so that I could actually understand that so I got Mm -hmm. to kind of work with 
kids who are six, seven, eight, all the way up to adults in their 80s yeah. and from people who are kind of navigating that really scary world of just starting to experience these symptoms and not knowing what to do all the way through to people who maybe have been living with these symptoms for a really long time. Um, and actually the common theme there is a couple of things. Firstly, I think so many people sit in front of me and they'll say to me, Lauren, why do I feel like this? And it doesn't matter whether they've been feeling like this for a week or a month or a year or 10 years. Um, they'll say, you know, nothing terrible has ever really happened to me or the things that other people can cope with, I can't cope with. And it really breaks my heart because I think it comes from this societal expectation that there has to be a direct link between mental health and kind of big T trauma where something terrible has to have happened in order for you to be valid in feeling the way that you do. But actually, if we think about when you get like a cold or a flu, you're not mm -hmm. like, well, what's the reason? And if I don't have a reason, I'm not allowed to feel sick. Actually, sometimes we just get sick or it's lots of things that we can't see. So I think for me, one of the big things that has come across all of those experiences is that there's very rarely a single cause when it comes to maybe why you feel the way that you do. Um, and that's okay. That doesn't make that experience any less valid. Um, I think sometimes we can think about mental health as if you're either well or you're not well. Yeah. And there's no gray area in between. Um, and I don't think that is true because if I said to you, I've, I've always felt physically 100% the same. You'd be like, Lauren, you're a liar. Um, you know, I may never get really seriously physically unwell, or I hope that I don't for a while. Yeah. But I've certainly had a cold or a flu or a time where I felt really run down. Mm -hmm. And our mental health's kind of the same. It's this whole big spectrum that we all sit on. And even if you spent most of your life in a situation where you didn't have a lot of risk factors, things can come along, whether that's hereditary factors that you'll never be able to see. Yeah. Or whether it's environmental things or life events or even personality traits. I talked about being perfectionistic there. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that played a role for me. Yeah. So there won't always be this one thing that says, you know, this is the reason why you feel the way you do. But that doesn't mean that you're not any less deserving of help and support. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that was a big thing when I was kind of working through in terms of common themes. Um. And then the second thing probably that really stands out to me is the impact that mental health can have on someone's life. And um, I think a lot of the time, you know, when we talk about mental health, we talk about it in isolation. Um, but actually, and, you know, I'll go in and do public speaking about lots of different mental health disorders. I do a lot of work, as I said, for the Eating Disorders Association. Mm -hmm. And people kind of say to me, well, listen, Lauren, that's that's about your body, isn't it? Or it's about what you eat. And actually, I've worked with hundreds of people with eating disorders, and it's so rarely about that. And it doesn't just affect them at mealtimes. You know, if you're waking up in the morning and you're exhausted because your body's undernourished and you haven't had a good night's sleep, and then you're stepping on the scales and that's dictating your day, you're exhausted through your work day or how you're socializing is affected, you know, every single aspect. So I think whether I'm working with an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old, I am saying that when we don't create a world where we understand mental health and we put in place the provisions to support people with mental health issues and understand that it's not something they can put in a box for one hour of therapy a week, yeah. it's something that still affects them at 
six days and 23 hours, then we're never going to get anywhere. Um, so I think both those two things, the kind of the cause and the impact are two big things that stay very consistent throughout. Mm-hmm. No, brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, I think I completely, I completely agree with everything you said there. I think there's, I think that desire, something, I think that desire to kind of pinpoint trauma again is kind of an overthrow of the the medical model in a way. And I think it's kind of like, because obviously whenever they're dealing with the body, like, you know, you're kind of like, okay, what's causing this rash, this lob, this tumor inside, you know, for a much graver example there. Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, they, they could pinpoint the tumor and see that it's causing symptoms. Whereas I think, I think the desire to pinpoint one singular trauma is part of that same psychology, I think, and that same method, that same approach, I think that, that comes from that training and, and perspective. I think it, it is a fair point. And I think, it is a case, and this is something I maybe learned whenever I was in Threshold. I think um, a lot of people's mental health difficulties are very much, can very much be related to things that are have nothing to do with their family history, nothing to do with, you know, trauma, but their own being integrated into society. And like what it's, it's kind of, their mental health difficulties can be the result of kind of like them coming up as an individual coming up against societal expectations that don't match them you know that don't match their personality don't match their yeah it's your sense of belonging isn't it you know and how you exactly, feel like you yeah. belong in the world and that's so subjective you know you and I could live the exact same life and you know we went to very similar schools we live very different lives I'm sure mm. and actually we could have interpreted those identical lives in very different ways and one person could feel as if, yeah, this life feels right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in psychology, we talk about this term called congruence. And it's kind of where where you want to be fits with where you are. And you feel this sense of belonging that aids your mental health. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, whether it's that your external life doesn't fit with where you want to be, or the person that you think that you are, or actually the person that other people expect you to be, and the environment around you doesn't fit with who you are. And none of those things are an easy answer, especially if you've just started seeing a psychologist and they say, well, what what do you think is going on here? For you to start talking about, you know, I just, I don't know, that's okay. So if you've ever gone to a psychologist and felt like I need to give them a reason or they're mm-hmm. expecting a reason, yeah. know that the problems with the system, it's not with you. It's perfectly okay to feel as if I'm just having these thoughts and they just are. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes the great thing about the work that we do is that we can work that out together down the road. You're not expected to know that right now. I certainly didn't. Um, I'm still finding out loads of things about myself every day, yeah. which is both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I think it's it's both a blessing and a curse, but at the end of the day, it is a journey, I guess, like it's a, a neutral 100%. way to look at it. I think um, that's what we're trying to do with Maxim. You know, I think that's fundamentally, we want to create a space fundamentally where, you know, people who, because 80% of mental health thing or mental health problems are kind of manifest by the age of 18 so there's really important window there to to tackle you know what's going on Absolutely. here so i think what we're looking to do at maxim is create those space so people feel you know feel like they have a space where they can belong to there's no prejudice there's no no kind of like they can just be themselves like you know and they don't have to view themselves through that exclusively pathological lens in a way like and i think um 
that's what we want to achieve with Max, and that's through, through the virtual reality spaces, through this podcast, through every other way. But that's that's our ultimate goal because it's preventative care. Ultimately, we want to tackle you know the values and all the rest that kind of give rise to to, to poor mental health and keep people locked in and end up viewing themselves pathologically rather than you know these things come and go. And the brain's a very complex thing. Like you know, it's a huge. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not a simple organ. So it's kind of like if you have these thoughts, it's not unusual. It's it's just the product of this thing, you know, inside your skull. So I think that takes us nicely into kind of, you know, I touched on kind of like you know the values there, and it kind of takes us nicely. What do you think is the biggest obstacle, kind of, to the reduction of mental health problems in on a wider scale within the population and society? Yeah, you touched on there, kind of people feeling alone or feeling like maybe their experience isn't represented and I think Mm. that that's something that we're still facing we've done a lot of work and I know that a 15 year old version of me would have loved a podcast like this Mm. so I'm hoping that the more that you guys continue to do this work the closer we get to where we need to be but um I think stigma and a lack of awareness of what mental health actually means is really big um we are seeing more and more um, podcasts like this or celebrities and influencers beginning to open up about the fact that whilst you might see their highlight reel, there is challenges with that. And that's great. Mm-hmm. And I think because I work in mental health and I'm really surrounded by it, I can almost forget the extent to which stigma really does impede people still mm-hmm. um, when it comes to reducing mental health problems. And I think that's kind of twofold. You know, on one side of it, we have this really outdated view um, that comes from the way that mental health problems would have been treated years and years ago, or yeah. even from the media, where we mm-hmm. still, and I still hear it said, where people associate mental health with words like crazy or dangerous or erratic. And that's really scary if you're feeling these feelings and you're petrified that these are the labels that are going to be associated with you. Um, and it can stop people then from reaching out for support because they're worried about whether they're going to have the same opportunities to access opportunities in their workplace or even opportunities to healthcare. So I think we've done a lot of work to kind of distill that. Mm -hmm. And whilst I still do really consistently see it, I do see progress. But Mm -hmm. I think what we're now increasingly seeing is this really dismissive attitude that's almost on the flip side of that, you know, where people are quite flippantly using terms like depression and anxiety in day-to-day dialogue. And that comes from a place of misinformation. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's challenging then when somebody who is struggling with that um, mental health challenge goes to their employer or goes to their school and then they feel really dismissed. And I still work with people um, when I go out into settings and I'll have bosses of really big companies say, you know, oh, well, they're just pulling the mental health card. You know, they just want to get out of work or I'll go into schools and people say, yeah, but it's just a teenage fad. And that's really dangerous because again, what I said about impact is it kind of then places this expectation that you're struggling with this huge challenge, but I'm expecting you to function as if you're not. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think about it a little bit. I do a lot of running, so I don't want, I try and make myself as light as possible when I'm running. I will not even carry a water bottle because I don't want to make it any harder than it needs to be. Um, So I think about it as if somebody says, right, you need to go and run a 5k race. And I'm like, great, I can do that. And then they're like, okay, you're going to carry this 20 kilogram weight plate whilst you run this 5k race. 
and you're like, okay, maybe I can do that. You know, I might just about be able to do that. Wow. But everybody else is not carrying that weight. So I'm not being given the same opportunities as everybody else, but you're placing the same expectation on me. So maybe on a really good day where I've had a lot of Weetabix, I can finish that race. But I'm not going to be, I'm going to be find it so much more challenging than people who didn't have that weight. And it would be made a whole lot easier if somebody acknowledged I was carrying it and helped me to carry it. So I think when we kind of take this really dismissive attitude, we're not allowing people to to recognize how hard things can be and get the help that they need to make things easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, again, like there's just so much to unpack there and so much <laughs> kind of like it's kind of bombs get off in my brain here. Like, you know, <laughs> I think um, the, I do see this kind of, what would you say, influx of kind of pop psychology into like um uh common language i kind of see it as a double-edged sword to be honest i think it's great that you know that it's psychology is not another profession that's locks away it's it's language into like this box of jargon that's inaccessible to everyone else no one understands it you know and you know it's only its practitioners can deliver whatever the kind of like preachers like <laughs> the, yeah. the sacred knowledge if you will that's kind of the way a lot of professions are structured and but i think also, like you said, it can kind of, the other edge of that sword, I think, is a kind of, um, it could be dangerous in the sense that, like, I see the term, like like you said, anxiety, depression, is around. Um, and, of course, like, like, I'm not saying it's invalid, like, for some people to say that they have it. It definitely isn't. But terms like narcissist, terms like sociopath, terms like, uh, the word, even the word ego is just now completely in pop psychology, and that's a word invented by Freud. Ego was not in her vocabulary 100, 150 years ago, I think. Um, like, you know, like, it's great that it's now a part of everyday language because it opens us up, it opens a new language game up where people can now, if they want, they can go delve into that. Like, all these books are available, all these things are now available on Amazon for like five pounds. You can buy Freud's, you know, and stuff like that. But I think, like, there is a double, it is a double edged sword because it can lead yeah. to kind of, like, misinformation being perpetuated. Because trust me, not everyone is a narcissist, for example. <laughs> you know, like, someone who's maybe a bit vain is on one side of things. You know, a pathological narcissist is a total, totally different ballgame. So I think, like, that's a danger I, I see with um, this influx of, of, of language. That's one example for sure. Like, yeah, 100%. Like, we don't do it with any other field of healthcare. If I started using terms that were related to cardiovascular health, you'd be like, Lord, you're so unequipped to understand those terms. And you'd be 100% right. Yes. And I think where it's really positive, our access to information is when I was 10, 12, 13, I couldn't type into Google, you know, these are the feelings I'm having and have somebody else say, I had those feelings. You're not the only person out there that feels those feelings. And I think that is a really powerful way for us to use this access to information. But we also then need to take the flip side of the fact that, as I said, everything's a spectrum and why someone might carry traits of something like narcissism. um, And I'm sure we all do at times. Mm. um, We need to recognise that actually there's a very small group of society who either are have a diagnosis of narcissism that makes their lives very challenging or people who have been very directly impacted by people who would have who would meet that criteria Mm -hmm. and whilst diagnoses aren't the be all and end all what we do when we start like making that our day-to-day go-to in terms of language is we invalidate those people's experiences and that can feel really challenging then to say no but this is what this felt like for me instead of you know 
I use it really flippantly in regards to a very day-to-day thing that you'll maybe get over in the next 30 seconds. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it is just trying to start with that education. It's almost like we've gone from not to 100 in terms of mental health information. Um, and I'd love to see us start to introduce that education way earlier so that people have that knowledge and yeah. can build it up gradually rather than almost it just exploding one day and we're not equipped to kind of take it all on. Um, so yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like that is probably one of the 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 most the foremost tasks really of, of what we're involved in, I think. I think it's really, I would argue the foremost task given like because of where it starts and how young we have to start and that sort of thing. So what what values do you think are helpful in kind of producing better mental health in people, both on an individual level and uh, on a societal level? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. I think in the past few years, we've seen a really big shift into this kind of world of toxic productivity, mm-hmm. um, where we place value in society has increasingly been, okay, well, what accolades and accomplishments do you have to show? And that almost defines your worth as a person. You know, you're being told, okay, have you got married by a certain age or have you bought a house by a certain age? Where are you in the career ladder? And what we know is that mental ill health, one of the big risk factors for it can be poor self-esteem. So when we have these very concrete kind of conditions of worth being placed on someone and they feel as if they're not living up to that, and it comes down to that, that incongruence that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. um, that then predisposes people for things like um, eating disorders or anxiety disorders or even burnout because we're working so hard all the time um, so I think one of the biggest things that we can do as a society is start to take it back a bit and mm-hmm. say success looks different for all of us and let's start focusing on the things that are internal let's focus on who we are rather than what we do and what we produce and that's a really hefty goal because that's not where we are right now, societally. Um, if you scroll through LinkedIn on any given day, you'll be met with somebody who's 30 years old and will tell you they have 30 years of work experience. And you're like, I'm so inadequate. Um, but the reality is we need to start recognizing accomplishments that are nothing to do with what we can write down in the CV. So I think that maybe starts on a smaller level. I don't think we can change society all at once. So I think it maybe starts with workplaces starting to set performance goals that are based on somebody's individual strengths rather than this really arbitrary target. Or even with young kids starting to really emphasize that who they are is based on who they are as a friend rather than who they are is based on what sports teams they're on or what grades they get. So Mm -hmm. there's lots of different kind of exercises and CBT things that I do with my clients when I go into workplaces to try and shift that focus so that Mm -hmm. we can create that bigger societal change but it's definitely challenging Mm -hmm. it is really challenging it is really challenging i think um and this is one of the driving forces for maxim i think is that it's really and this is probably something we both learned at threshold it's it's really difficult to get people to get adults who have decades of enacting these really toxic patterns for example it's difficult to get them to shift perspective it's much more difficult to get that change to occur than it is to maybe inculcate in children there and young people the correct values you know um, just before that window and um, you know whenever mental health problems are most likely to develop i think it's much more difficult to get adults to change you know who maybe people who are 40 or 50 years old it's much more difficult uh, it's a sad reality it's something i really don't like but 
it is just a fact that it is much more difficult to get someone who's been through, who spent decades enacting the same patterns over and over again, than it is to get children at the right time. To it's great to though that we know so mm. much more about the brain now than we used to because we, do, yeah. we know that that change is possible. It's not easy, but our brains change in response to what we repeatedly do, which is where us kind of forcing ourselves to be nicer to ourselves is actually scientifically really backed so if you feel mm-hmm. as if you know it's really uncomfortable for you to be nice to yourself what mm-hmm. we know is the more that we do that the easier it becomes so definitely something if you're finding that really challenging something I do is I kind of think about well what do I value in my friends um and I've never picked a friend based on what their annual salary is or what size of their jeans are yeah. um I'm friends with my friends because they've been there for me when I've needed them or they're kind or they're resilient so I try and recognize what those factors are and then at the end of the day you can take a notebook and nobody has to see it and start to write out okay how what's one example of a way that I've demonstrated that quality today so instead of thinking okay I'm worthwhile as a person because I submitted this report in work and that reached this target thinking okay well I had a really busy day in work today and I showed a lot of thoughtfulness because I took five minutes out of my day to talk with someone who I knew was having a bit of a rough time, even though it might have been easier not to. And the more that we are able to recognize thoughts like thoughtfulness, the more that we place value on them and it then increases our self-esteem over time. So small changes consistently over time. Um, and it is definitely, it would be a lot easier if that was a message or an exercise that we were all given when we were five. Um, but it's definitely never too late. It is never too late. Totally agree with that. Totally agree. And I think um Again, wonderful, wonderful. What, again, we're coming into the sort of the last sort of five minutes um, here. What is the most important change you'd like to see in the world of mental health in your lifetime? Big question for the last five it minutes. Is it is a big question. Um, I think I'd really like to see more services for everyone at every stage of that mental health spectrum. Um, right from the point where you, even before the point that you start to struggle, you know, it's a big problem globally, um, but we know that the recommendation from the World Health Organization is that 13% of our health budget should be spent on mental health. Yeah. And we're just not meeting that in England. We're 6%. Well. <laughs> we're 6%. That's pretty shocking. Um, and especially where we are in Northern Ireland, for a country which has so much trauma generationally, for that to be what... If we are saying we know that early intervention is so key, we know that it improves recovery rates and it supports people with mental ill health, and then our governmental priorities are not reflecting that, Mm. that's a problem. So I would love to see that change to have consistent support systems in place and even preventative measures, as you were talking about earlier. You know, we have so much societally to prevent poor physical health. We have gyms and we have information on healthy eating and we have smoking cessation services. I would love to see us going into schools and teaching kids how to recognize their feelings and process those difficult feelings so that when they come up, they know that it's worthwhile to go and get help. I'd love to see workplaces have programs in place to prevent burnout. And then from a more kind of mental ill health side of things, I would love to see us put our money where our mouth is and actually put in place services that support someone in a timely and appropriate way 
and holistically rather than in this really pathological, quite cold way mm. to help people feel supported right from the second that they disclose the symptoms that are going on all the way up to people who maybe have been struggling for a long time. Because we can say we don't have the money for this. Mm. But actually, I think that the way that we're deprioritizing mental health in the long term is going to cost us far more money than that early intervention approach. And mm. much more importantly, it wouldn't just save money. It would obviously save a lot of lives. Um, so when I change the world, that's my first priority. Um, so. No, wonderful, wonderful. I think um, I agree. There's so much. Uh, there's just so much um, to to. There's so much for us to do. Like the, and I think that's that six percent figure is really, it's almost a statement in itself in a way, and it's kind of quite an embarrassing Fair statement. Fine. I have to be honest. You know, it's really, it's really embarrassing. I think personally, um, for our but especially given the context that this state emerged from and all that's gone on thirty years ago, forty years ago, as long as if it was five hundred years ago, it was. You know, 100% and people are still affected in a yeah. big way. Yeah, so, exactly. No. And I just think like for us to only spend 6% on a mental health budget is just not good enough, quite frankly. And I think it's not good enough in the mainland. I know there's a little bit higher, but like it's still not good enough. I think, I, I don't know mathematically what it should be. I'm not going to say it should be 20, 25%. That's because that's quite arbitrary, but it should be much more than it is. Like uh, much more than 6% anyway. Um, well, we think, know that, you know, yeah. We know that mental ill health is the leading killer of men under the age of 50. And we know that we are not investing a proportionate Mm -hmm. amount. So even if we look at the people affected, that 25% of our population struggle with mental ill health, we cannot justify 6% of our health budget being spent there. Um, So, yeah, I think the figures you gave, whilst they may have been filled out of your head, were fairly accurate. And Mm -hmm. we need to to do better. Mm, Totally agree. Listen, Lauren, thank you so much for coming to join. This is actually, this is an incredible conversation. I think this is one of the best interviews I've ever done, really. I'm not just saying that, I mean, to, to flatter you, it's really an incredible, thank um, you very much. incredible conversation. And thank you so much for the preparation you've been into as well. Um, there's lots of really interesting talking points. I think people listening to that will, they'll be like, wow, you know, I could learn so much just from this conversation. So um, well done. It's really obvious. Um, I think the uh, the passion that you have um, for what you do is really shines through um, with every response there. So not just the factual factual statements you put forward and your reasoning and whatnot. I think the passion that you have for what you do really shines through in every answer. So thank you very much for giving me some of your time. And Not in the slightest. And I yeah, I can't wait to go on and see what um, Maxim does because it's a fantastic project. Um, definitely stands behind everything I believe in. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much. All the best. Now. Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for this great conversation, Barbara and Ryan. If you would like to join and share your story, please email us or reach out on our social media channels. You will find all the info in the podcast description. See you next time.